Uh, before we start the message this morning, I want to call up Maddie Postnikov. Maddie, you're here? Awesome. Most of you know Maddie, uh, Warren and Maureen's daughter, and Maddie came to me last year in the fall and said, Chris, I want to go away and do something uh, meaningful and cross-cultural. And so I set her up with one of our partners in Guatemala, and she was there for five months. And so we've talked about Maddie, we've prayed for Maddie as a church. I know many of you have gotten behind Maddie, and now she's back. And so we want to hear from you, Maddie. How, uh, how's the trip? Why don't we We'll grab Mike here. I, I mean, I guess the first question would be, why in the world did you want to do this? Um, I had a year off, and I really felt God just calling me. He's like, do something with substance. Like, go out and do some work. And so I wanted to get my hands dirty, and so when I was talking to you about it, it just kind of all fell into place. Perfect. So I, th- I think we have some pictures here. Maddie, do you want to just tell us about your experience? What, what did you do? Um, Okay, so I was teaching English in a high school, which was about 600 kids, and I taught all 600 in five days, Um, so it was long days, but so incredible. Uh, The age ranges was from 11 years old to about 25, so it was a big gap. Um, Here in this picture, this was one of my favorite activities that I got to do with my kids. Um, So I got them all to draw a picture of their own face, and then we would tape it up around the walls of the classroom, and they'd go around and write encouragements in English on each thing, like of their classmates. And so was, that was really awesome. They loved it. Cool. Really cool. cool. Um, so you were teaching English. What, uh, I mean, tell us some ways in which you saw God at work. How did he use you? Uh, what's happening down there? Um, I think one of the, like, the most obvious ways to me that I saw God at work was just like the relationships that I was able to build with these kids. And like, I don't speak a ton of Spanish and they didn't speak a lot of English. So it was like, it was really cool to get to build these relationships with these kids, even though there was a huge language barrier. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the ministry that you're serving with and some of the other things that they do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was serving with uh, Nueva Generation, and other work that they do is they do stuff like um, uh, they had programs that they do with the kids, so they worked in other schools, and they also had an ethics and morals class that they would teach. So they had that, plus English classes, um, and they do things like, uh, they just had a kids camp on the weekend where they took a bunch of kids away and had like a retreat, um, and yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, and we were, th- we were there in March, a whole bunch of us, about 10% of our church was there, and we got to see Maddie in action at that high school right here, so it was, it was super cool. Uh, Maddie, just tell us, like, what's next on the plate for you? What are you doing with your life? Um, so come September, I will be going to the King's University in Edmonton. Cool. Well, we'll miss you, but, uh, sounds like a great trip. So thanks for serving. And thank you, Creekside, for praying for her and supporting her and getting behind her. That's good. Maddie, do you want to say anything about these pictures? Are they pretty self-explanatory? Um, so this was also a really cool opportunity. So for it was probably just over a month, they had at their lunch hours, they would have soccer games, and they'd have like three going at a time. Um, and they had a teacher versus student one. So like all of us teachers got in there, and that was the most incredible experience because so none of my kids knew that I was going to play because I was like, nah, I don't like, I don't like soccer. And so they were all like lined up because they all, so <laughs> there's like the three layers, and they would, just filled with kids on each three layer. And so when I came out there, they're all like, 
Miss Maddie, what? Like you're playing and they all got so excited and it was just the cutest thing I have ever seen. It was just, it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, and then this. Um, so I don't know if a lot of you know about in Antigua, it's like this Easter is this huge deal. And so uh, basically, the, okay, so the entire Holy Week, they would have these incredible carpets, they call them, laid out like all along the streets of Antigua. And so this is all made with like sawdust and just like flowers and stuff like that. Um, yeah, this is just a really cool experience that got to have when I was down there. And yeah, so they would build these and then have these huge, they're called processions, come through and they're like, um, like parades of people holding these huge, I don't know what to call them, but yeah. And so then they would walk over these. So you'd go up, walk for a couple hours and see them all and then within minutes they're all destroyed. That's really cool. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Maddie. Uh, what a great experience. Are we good with this or should I switch to a mic? This good? All right. So it's our last service here at the school and this is our last sermon on the series that we have been journeying through since January. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed this series. It's been great to really camp in one book and really try to uh, wrap our heads around what Mark is trying to say and what he is saying about Jesus. And I'm, it's a bit bittersweet today. Um, I'm glad that we're going to move on and talk about other things. We're going to talk about the book of Psalms for the summer, but um, I've really enjoyed being here. So today, today I'm going to do what is most natural. The topic is going to be the resurrection. I don't know how anyone can preach through any of the Gospels and not talk about resurrection. It is the most important event in, in the history of, of the world. It's the most important event in Christianity, and it's a big task. We're talking about the hinge point of Christianity. Upon this event, everything uh, rises and falls. The resurrection is the most important thing. And so we cannot possibly over-exaggerate how important it is. Um, everything rotates on this. And yet, and yet the resurrection is, let's face it, it's a highly controversial subject today. And it is increasingly becoming more and more controversial. In our 21st century North American secular society, it, we are often viewed as strange, maybe irrational uh, naive people to believe in something like a resurrection or miracles or anything of that sort. Um, I'm reminded, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was reminded of a conversation I had with a really good friend of mine last summer. He came to visit. Uh, I grew up with him. We were, we were best friends growing up. Uh, we went to Gardam Lake together. We even went to Bible college together in Australia. We were more than friends. We were like brothers in Christ. We really uh, journeyed together. But over the years, he just kind of slowly started fading away, started losing interest, lost connection with the local church, and, you know, one thing's led to another. And as we were sitting down uh, over on the patio at Turtle Bay over the summer, we are just talking about life, and he was just, we are talking about faith, because inevitably that's going to come up. And he's just like, I just really don't believe anymore. And I'll, I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, Chris, do you, in your heart of hearts, do you really actually believe that this is true? Like, do you actually accept this as historical proof? Uh, he says, I just cannot get intellectually behind such strange and irrational ideas. I just can't go there anymore. He said, and he, he, was, 
he was actually surprised that I could still say so confidently that yes, I believe, because for him, it has moved to a realm of just superstition and mythology, and he just cannot get behind it anymore. So the conversation went on throughout the evening, and uh, we really tried to unpack this. I asked lots of questions, he asked lots of questions. When it got down to it, he was willing to accept a historical Jesus. Uh, he was willing to accept the fact that 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus who lived in, uh, under the Roman Empire, lived in Judea, and uh, he was certainly there. There's enough evidence to point to that. But pretty much anything after that, he rejected. And especially the, his rejection and his opposition came to anything supernatural, like miracles or Holy Spirit or resurrection. Now, I think this is actually a pretty typical view of most people today in our secular, post-Christian society. You're not going to find many people who actually deny historical Jesus. Most people can accept that. There's, just, there's too much evidence supporting the fact that there was a Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. But many people, many people will even say, I really like his teachings. I like his moral code. I even like his political code. I'll stand by that. But when it comes to resurrection, this is where so many get stuck. They just cannot rationally accept uh, the supernatural part of it. And many will say this, and I'm sure you've heard it too. They will say, can't we just do away with the supernatural parts of Christianity and just accept it as a good moral teaching? I mean, why can't we just do that? Haven't we evolved in the 21st century to the point where we can accept that? And the biblical answer to that question is a very gracious and humble and yet a very emphatic no. No, you can't. You cannot have the Jesus of the Bible without resurrection. It's not possible. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And if he did not rise from the dead, it changes absolutely nothing, but there is no middle ground. You can't, you can't somehow meet it halfway. Either it happened and it's changed everything, or it didn't happen, and it affects absolutely nothing. Tim Keller, many of you will have heard his name, he so eloquently puts it like this. He says, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This is the pivotal issue. This is the pivotal issue. So the question that's going to guide us this morning is this. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Do we have any reasonable explanations that we can offer those who doubt? What, how do we answer our friends who, like I had this summer, when they, they, when they say, why do you believe this? What kind of answers can we offer here? Now, this is a huge topic, and there's so much that I can say this morning, but we're going to stay grounded in the book of Mark, and we're going to use Mark as our guide as we work through this. And so, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Mark chapter 15, so that's just the last bit of Mark, and then we're going to read chapter 16, verse 8, and it's on the screen there. Now, if you do have your Bibles, you notice that there's in italics, verses 9 to 20, we're not going to read that, and your Bible will clearly say that uh, most scholars believe that Mark ended at verse 8. And the reason for that is that most, all the early manuscripts and even the early church fathers claimed uh, verses 9 to 20 uh, unauthentic, something that would have been added later. So we're not going to read that part, and we're just going to stick to the fact that Mark ended at verse 8 there, chapter 16. So, um, before I read this, I want us to keep in mind that Mark is the first gospel that's written. Most scholars agree that Mark was written in the 60s, maybe even in the early 50s. To give you some context, Jesus... Uh, Death and resurrection was around 32 or 33 AD. So Mark was written less than 30 years after the event. This is very, very early source 
material. So people reading this for the first time uh, would have belonged to the same generation or at, or at the very most only one generation removed from this event that happened. So um, we are reading history here. We're not reading something that's passed down from word of mouth from multiple generations over hundreds of years. That's how legends are formed, but we're not reading that kind of material here. We're reading very early source material. So as I read through this, I want you to keep in mind, keep that in mind. Okay, chapter 15, verse 32. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that this was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Then we get into chapter chapter 16 here. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, and it had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw, the, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because... They were afraid, and that's how Mark ends. So let's, uh, let's unpack this a bit. First thing that we see, starting in verse 42, is that Jesus was dead. Now this might seem to you like a very useless point, but the reason that this needs to be recognized is that there are some arguments out there that claim that Jesus never actually died. He only appeared to die. They would say that after he was buried, he managed to escape, And he made his way and then lived in secret for the rest of his life with the disciples. Now, this view started gaining traction in the 19th century, but today uh, it's going to be pretty rare to find somebody that actually believes this. Uh, Two good reasons that we can refute this. It's physically impossible. The Romans, they're highly trained killers. And crucifixion is a very brutal but incredibly effective way to kill somebody. Nobody survives something like that. And then secondly, uh, this line of thinking is religiously impossible. Even if that happened, why would the disciples see a very injured Jesus and then all of a sudden start telling people that he had risen from the dead and that he is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah? What would possess them to do that? It doesn't make any sense. So Jesus died. In our text, his death is verified by both Pilate and the centurion. You would have noticed that. Both Pilate and the centurion acknowledge that uh, Jesus died. So not only did Jesus' disciples acknowledge his death, but also his enemies acknowledge his death. Second thing that I want to note here is Joseph of Arimathea. So who is this guy? Joseph belongs to the council, the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin. This is kind of the Jewish high court. So this was the upper ruling class at the time, and Joseph of Arimathea belonged into that, uh, into that strata. 
that status there. So he's part of the ruling class. He would have been well-known among the people. He would have been one of the people that everyone would have known as one of the key leaders, somebody that belongs to the council. Mark tells us that this Joseph of Arimathea, he's waiting for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of John, John tells us that he's actually a secret follower of Jesus. Joseph goes and purchases a tomb. This is something that only a rich person can afford to do. And so he does this so that Jesus can have an honorable burial. Some people will say that the whole death and resurrection of Jesus is a story that's made up, a fabricated myth. But let me ask you this. If you are a disciple making up the story, why would you mention a man belonging to the ruling class? Why would you mention a man whom everybody would know who that person is or who that person's descendants are? You wouldn't name that. If you're trying to make this up, you would not talk about Joseph of Arimathea. Mark was written early enough that Joseph of Arimathea was most likely still alive and could verify this information. And if he was dead, everyone would have known who his uh, offspring were and they would have gone and talked to to them. So Mark intentionally name drops here. It's an important point. All the name dropping, all the eyewitness accounts, it uh, it gives us so much credibility. Myths and fabrications don't use names of people who are still living. Because you're just going to go talk to them and say, hey, did it happen? And they're going to say, no, it's made up. And then the whole story falls apart, right? This leads us to the next point. One of the most striking parts of all four of the gospel accounts uh, of the resurrection is the focus on the women. This is so important. Uh, For us 21st century readers, we tend to glance over this point because men and women are at the same level and our words carry the same weight. But it is so different back then in that culture. The status of women in both uh, Jewish culture and Roman culture in the first century was that their status was so low that their words didn't carry any weight. And their admission in court wasn't accepted. So here's an example. If a crime was committed and a woman witnessed the crime, her testifying in court wouldn't matter because no one would believe her. Because women's words don't carry any weight at the time. Now, it's really unfortunate that that was the case, but... That's just simply the way the culture was. I'm glad we've progressed from there. But if you are a disciple and you're trying to make this story up, you would never include women as those who discovered the tomb first. It actually undermines the plausibility of the account. And the only reason that you would do such a thing is if that's the way it actually happened. I imagine all four of the gospel writers felt the pressure to actually take out the women from the story and add men because for them in that culture it would have given it more credibility. But they didn't do that because they couldn't because they're recording history and they had to be true to what actually happened. And so for all four gospel writers, they say the women were the first to discover the empty tomb. This is true history. If you're fabricating the story, you would not use the name of a well-known ruling class leader like Joseph of Arimathea, and you would certainly not have women being the ones that testify first to the empty tomb. Which then leads us to our next uh, very significant point, eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. So Mark mentions three names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. When the gospel writers include real names, they are showing that this is actually a very real historical event. So in the ancient world, they, you would think of this as a footnote. So if I'm writing, you're reading a book and you see a footnote and you're going to go to the bottom of the page and, that, and there, that footnote tells you where you got this information. It gives credibility to the quote that you just said. In the ancient world, naming names was like giving a footnote. They're saying, here's the person who saw it, go talk to them. 
Here's your footnote. Here's the evidence that this stuff actually took place. So when they're naming names, you go and check it out. That's what's going on here. And it's not just the women that were the ones that witnessed this. Um, there were many, many more. And I want to read a text for you uh, in 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is actually written even earlier than Mark's account. This is about 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. This is the first written evidence that we have of the first creed and even the resurrection. So let's read it. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For what I received, is it, there we go. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. That's really interesting, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me as one abnormally born. So, the point I'm making here, I want you to just notice all of the eyewitness accounts. There's Peter, there's the 12, then there's 500 brothers, 500 other people. Then there's James, who's the brother of Jesus. Interestingly enough, none of Jesus' family actually believed him until after. And then James all of a sudden becomes the leader of the church. How does that happen? Something must have happened to him. And then Paul himself saw Jesus. So we have a number of eyewitness accounts and once again, this is written so soon after the actual events that anyone reading this could actually go and talk to these people. And Paul's essentially challenging them, say, hey, these people are still alive, and here's their names. Go talk to them. Ask them if this actually happened. So many people witnessed the resurrect resurrected Jesus. So let's go back to our text in Mark. One other point I want to make here. Uh, the women enter the tomb, and they see a young man who proclaims he's risen, and you're going to see him soon. So you imagine the shock of the women hearing this. They're not expecting this. Even though Jesus had repeatedly told them that he was going to die and rise again, they had absolutely no framework in which to understand or comprehend that somebody could rise from the dead. No one was looking for this. N.T. Wright, who's a, a world-renowned New Testament theologian today, he's written extensively about this fact. That's what he says. He says, first century people, they do not believe, they did not believe in a bodily resurrection. Greeks and Romans, they didn't, they didn't value the physical or the material world, so they had no need or no desire for a bodily resurrection. Jews, on the other hand, did believe in a bodily resurrection, but it was a futuristic event. It was something they expected would happen at the very end of time. At, at, you know, at, at the very end, it would happen, but not something that's going to happen in the middle of history. They had no context or paradigm to understand that such a thing could happen. The very idea of a resurrection would have been totally absurd to both Greco-Romans and Jews alike. No one was looking for this. And you might ask, well, why does this matter? Well, some critics have suggested that perhaps the disciples hallucinated. Or perhaps the disciples conspired together, they stole the body, and they made this story up to try and fool everyone. But both of these options could only be possible if the idea of resurrection was actually expected and accepted at the time. If this was something people were looking for, well, then may maybe we can at least entertain that idea. But the fact that nobody even had a paradigm to understand a bodily resurrection, even if you wanted to make this story up, it wouldn't make any sense because no one was living with that ex expectation or anticipation. Israelite history under Greek and Roman occupation is full of rebel leaders who are constantly seeking to rescue their people from either Greek rule or Roman rule. Jesus was not the first revolutionary leader, and he certainly wasn't the last revolutionary leader 
There are piles of them. But Jesus is the only leader that ever claimed to have been risen from the dead. The only one of any of those leaders who claimed uh, resurrection. And for this, I want to put up a quote from N.T. Wright. In not, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of a disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish, Jewish revolutionaries whose leaders had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. So that's what N.T. Wright has to say. There's so much more I can say about this, but the point is that no one expected this, and yet it happened. Well, how does Mark end his gospel? Verse 8, he ends his gospel by saying, the women went away trembling and bewildered. They're terrified, they're confused, they're in hiding, and we know the disciples do the same thing. The disciples were so scared, they weren't even out going to the tomb. They had locked their door and they were hiding, hiding away. This is a terrified, confused, scared group of people. How did this group of people who are bewildered and terrified, how do they turn 180 degrees and all of a sudden become bold proclaimers of Jesus Christ as Lord? The church grows like wildfire, just absolutely explodes. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Within 300 years, Christianity is a dominant worldview, and it is, it is triumph over paganism. How do you explain this from a group of terrified and bewildered people? There's only one explanation. Something happened to them. Something must have happened for them to all of a sudden turn from being scared to being an incredible group of people who started this, the largest movement history has ever seen. Resurrection is the only way to explain this extraordinary uh, reality.